This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Cody Marincer talks about apologetics for teens. Does God really exist? One body, one Why does God put boundaries on our sexuality? One body, God's well, let's find out. Cody is being interviewed by Divine Mercy Radio's on-air host, Ken Billinger. We have Cody Marenzer, who is joining us this morning in his sixth year of teaching sophomore and senior religion at Thomas More Prep Marion High School, married to Karen, and they have six children. I met your son, who was in here the other day. Oh, yes. And uh, so, uh, let, uh, of course, always great to talk to you. We're going to talk today about apologetics for teens. So looking forward to that, and um, let's let's uh, just kind of jump right in. We're going to talk about a couple of different things, God and his existence, and, and also about sexuality as well. So uh, since you teach teens at TMP Marion High School, and they're at an age where they're still part of their parents' faith, many have, many have not yet made the Catholic faith their own. Let's talk yeah. about that a little bit. Many ask, why does God even exist? So how do you respond to those questions that you get from students? All right. Well, first, if I might give a shout out to my wife, because the only reason that I'm here this morning and going is because she's at home taking care of all the kids, yeah. uh, getting them to school and everything else. And so uh, she is she is definitely the reason why I'm able to do everything that I am able to do. So I just got to uh, give a shout out to her. Say, right. I love you, honey. So, <laughs> so on to your question then. You know, I think the best thing that we can do, and uh, I get caught up sometimes myself just trying to answer everybody's questions sometimes. But one of the best ways to approach that, I think, is actually to start off with asking them, well, what do you think? Because then we can get, we, we can judge off of where their question is coming from whether they're just uh, questioning it because, you know, they're curious and just trying to further it or whether they're really pushing back on something, you know. And, and I think that then helps us to enter into um, an engagement with them uh, from a standpoint of uh, knowing then, uh, well, uh, what is it that uh, you are trying to figure out here? But uh, as for the question, you know, does God even exist? The best way to answer that is, well, is it reasonable? Uh, you know, if you look at... I think we'd look at uh, maybe questions between uh, atheists and believers. And I think if we break it down from there and go, well, you know, the atheist point of view would be that uh, there's not a God, obviously. And our point of view, obviously, is there is a God. And so anytime you get into a discussion with somebody, basically how it goes is the, the person making the positive claim has the burden of proof. And so if I'm making the positive claim that there is a God, then I have to somehow show evidence that there is a God. But there's actually a way where you can have the burden of proof on both people. And I like to take it then back to creation. Uh, that's kind of one of my favorite ways to uh, go and uh, get somebody to start thinking about the existence of God is because we all have to, unless you just want to put your head in the sand, we all have to take a stance on uh, how do I believe not just humanity was created, but everything was created. And as a, as a believer, I would say that God created out of nothing. Non-believers would say that uh, we are an accident or um, things just spontaneously happen. 
And so I think if you start there and you go, well, let's take the evidence and run with it then and see where the evidence takes us. I think that's a better way to approach it because otherwise you feel like you're kind of stuck in, okay, well, I'm making the positive claim, therefore I have the burden of proof. Well, if you put the burden of proof on both people and go, okay, well, where is your claim coming from? You know, so let's look at that side and where would people say um, spontaneous creation came from? How did it happen? Things like that. That's also then a positive claim because if they make the claim, well, we're spontaneous, then you're making that claim and you have to back it up. So I think that's a good place to start then um, to get people thinking, get the get the wheels a turning. Sure. What a great uh, that's certainly a great approach. Now, a team might say, I have a friend who is an atheist. Could they be right? I mean, that's uh, obviously the thing is kids today. And I, I think there's so many challenges. You guys have so many challenges, not only as parents, but as teachers, because they are exposed to so much. But say mm-hmm. you have a student who comes to you and says, I have a friend who's atheist. Could they be right? How, how do you handle something like that? You know, I think I would then jump back to what we were just talking about and uh, have them uh, go through the, the reasons then. And, you know, the thing is we, we often think that we have to do this all on our own and we have to, you know, come up with these great answers and everything. But there's a lot of wisdom out there that if you're just willing to go and search for it, you can find. And some of the great wisdom, I think, comes um, from St. Thomas Aquinas and uh, what is called his uh, five proofs for the existence of God, otherwise known as his five arguments for the existence of God. Some of the uh, conversations that I've been in with young people on this uh, topic, I've had some atheists who seemed more curious, and then I've had some militant atheists who were going to press their point of view no matter what. And here's what I generally find. When you go to the creation question and you ask an atheist, well, how do you think that we got here? And if they want to say, well, I think that it just spontaneously happened, or we came from um, pre-existent material. The problem is that you go, okay, well, how did that pre-existent material get there then? And what I've run into is uh, I was having a conversation with a kid who he just wanted he just wanted to keep pushing further and further and further back. And so the thing is, he finally got to what you'll see some people talk about, like, well, we started from this singularity. And you can even give him that, like, okay, fine. But where did that singularity come from? And he was saying, well, it came from a supermassive black hole, which basically means that there's basically nothing. And I said, well, you keep using the term basically, but there's got to be something. And also, where does a black hole come from? A black hole is a force with a lot of gravity. And and I'm not uh, I can't say that I know a whole lot about black holes or anything like that. But I've looked enough into it um, to at least be able to try and answer this question. And that's one thing that we, we could even go, Okay, so where did the force for the black hole even come from? Because people want to, like I said, in that situation, a lot of times they want to just keep pushing it further and further back because you might say, well, okay, well, creation started with uh, material the size of a golf ball. Okay, well, where did that come from? Well, now we found out that um, it's more like a singularity where it's uh, at this infinitesimal size where we can't even really see it or anything. Okay, but you're still admitting that there's something there. And so I just keep pushing on that because at some point you have to come to the reasoning of everything that we see, everything that we know is created somehow. 
And we don't walk around just seeing things pop in and out of existence. And if we don't normally see that, then does it reason that this just happened at one time? And even then, going back to what I already said, where does that pre-existent material come mm -hmm. from? Because we can, we can imagine something like a mind being able to create things, but even go to like um, inanimate matter, rocks, and things like that. How many people can actually imagine rocks creating themselves? There's no intelligibility there. And so that's where we would start to say, okay, if you then think about it, if you reason through it and you go, okay, there has to be some intelligibility behind it. And if there's intelligibility behind it, then that talks about something more like a mind. And if you're talking about something more like a mind, you're not talking then just an accident. Now you're talking about something more like what we would say is God. And so mm. that's where, you know, I think you start to reason through things and you can start to see, okay, yeah, I can keep pushing it further and further back and I can keep making creations and starting points smaller and smaller and smaller to a point where I can't even imagine it. But still, we have to come to that. Yeah. We have to, at some point, face the facts that material does not create itself. Right. I think that's, that's a, I love that. I love the way you explain that. And, it, and that I've never heard it explained that way, but it makes perfect sense that we have to start from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, again, like you said, no matter how far we push back and, and keep going back and back and back, there still has to be. Uh, I think that what stuck with me when you said a rock doesn't create itself. I mean, yeah. it's not like we just all of a sudden a rock, you know, exists from, yeah. from nothing. So how do we know if the Catholic Church is the church Jesus founded? I know this question gets asked uh, a number of times. We, we talk about that. But uh, when somebody approaches you with that uh, question, how do you handle that one? So this is, uh, this is an awesome question. This, the reason why this is one of my favorite questions is because as a convert, then this was a question that I had to struggle with. And it'd be one thing, I think, if we were just all a bunch of he said, she said uh, denominations. You know, that if it just came down to he, sh he said, she said, well, then we're all just kind of going, uh, no, we are. No, we are. No, we are. But something that I, you know, just really opened my eyes is when you talk about the early church fathers, and you say, well, okay, go back and read what the first Christians were, were writing, what the first Christians were saying. A lot of people will say, whoa, 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 you can't look at the early Christian fathers because if you're talking early Christian fathers, you're talking Catholicism. And I want to look at, uh, I want to look at the writings from the early Christians. Well, there's your problem. <laughs> Those are the early Christians. You show me documents from, the, from uh, early Christians that are not Catholic and I'll start changing my views. But the problem is that when you look at what we in the Catholic Church would call the early church fathers and find writings of Christians uh, from the first centuries on, what you are going to find is the Catholic Church. You're not going to find any other different sects of Christianity or anything involving that time. Um, in fact, you're going to find uh, things talking about like uh, baptism like the Catholic Church would have it. You're going to find the Eucharist being talked about as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. You're going to um, find out uh, how uh, they worshipped, uh, what they were believing, what the apostles were handing down. You're even going to find writings that talk about such and such was the uh, third, the fourth, uh, the fifth successor of Peter, which 
we would call the Pope. Mm-hmm. And when you have people riding on that, then it's, I think it should be start to really open your eyes. And I have to say, the people that I know who have gone back and done their homework and have, okay, taken a historical look at early Christianity, every single one that I know and a lot that I've been reading about recently, that's what they end up doing. In fact, I was just reading an account of a Baptist minister who wanted to know the roots, and he started going back reading, and in his own words, he said, none of these guys are Baptists. And so then he ended up converting to the church because he realized, oh my goodness, if we really want to get back to the roots of Christianity, those roots lead us to the church. I'm I'm very, you know, I'm kind of intrigued because I think there are a lot of um, Protestant brothers and sisters who, do they just not go back and look? Because to me, that is... You I guess that what I'm looking at is if you go back and read Justin Martyr, for example, in his yeah. first apology, he's talking about the mass. I mean, it's so obvious. It's like, wow. And is it are people just not reading those things? Because it's like, how can you read it and not know that? Wow. OK, this is the church Christ founded. This is where it came from. Yeah, so, and Justin Martyr, was he around 2nd century or something? I don't yeah, remember about, exactly. He, I think he wrote his first apology about 151 A.D. right okay. there. Yeah. yeah, so somewhere right in there. So, you know, obviously, um, when I came into the church, faith wasn't a big part of my life, and I had been out of uh, a church for a long time. And so I can't speak for everybody, um, but I can speak. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, yes, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are very, very faithful people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that that is a lot of it is that uh, I know in my own life that there was quite a time when I did not like studying. And just kind of what was handed on to me, I just I just took it, okay. And, and it's kind of funny because uh, a lot of a lot of my students will um, talk about, well, this is just the faith that's handed on to us. And I said, well, that's why you got to make it real. Then you have to go out and you have to put the work in it. Some of them go and do it, but some of them will just leave our conversations where they're at in class. And so, yeah, I think that does happen a lot with some of our brothers and sisters in Christ is that um, they have taken what's been handed on to them, which is obviously not always bad because belief in Christ is a good thing. But if you've never made it your own, if you've never owned it, then it's not really your own faith. It is only just the faith of your parents. And you've got to really own it. You have to, I mean, especially when we talk about even having a relationship with uh, Christ. Uh, if if that relationship is just lived vicariously through your parents, then it's not actually your relationship. And so, yeah, I would say that. I would say that, especially as I had already talked just a few minutes ago, if you have people who are looking at the situation and go, wait a minute, but St. Justin Martyr, you guys call him St. Justin Martyr, uh, he is, that means that he's this Catholic guy. I want to read somebody who's not Catholic. Once again, that's the problem. Yeah. yeah. There, you, there, there's no such thing out there. And, and so, I, you know, I challenge anybody who would be listening, you know, to, to go and look that up. Go and research that because, yeah, I think you point out a very perfect one where when they're explaining the Mass, and then if you go to the Mass today, you're going to be like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. This is what I just read about. This is what the early Christians were doing? Then how do you not— yeah, and come back to uh, that. And really, about the only thing when you read Justin Martyr, for example, I think he may use the term president or presider or something as far as the priest goes. So, mm-hmm. but but 
the, everything you read in there is the mass, and that's the, the amazing thing. And I think the other thing, you, you mentioned something else, because when I do talks, too, I do a number of parish talks and things like that. I always ask people, why are you Catholic? And, and I said, now, here, before you answer, you can't say because my parents were uh-huh. Catholic or because I grew up Catholic. Why are you living the Catholic faith? There's, find out why. You know, it's kind of like I hear people that say, you know, why are you a Democrat? Well, my parents were Democrat and my grandparents were Democrat. Democrat. Well, is that a reason to be? And I'm not picking. I'm not picking sides on politics here. I'm just making yeah. the point that we have to have the foundation ourselves as to why we practice our Catholic faith. Why are we Catholic? And I always tell people to to you know find the answer for that. And I you know I mean if somebody asked you that question in a few words, what would you tell them? And uh, so that's always the challenge that that's out there. God and his existence, that's uh, one of the kind of the subtitles of our apologetics talk this morning for teens. So this question gets asked a lot, I'm sure, and I'm sure you get this because the kids see all the, not just kids, but adults, we see all the evil in the world and all the things going on. If God is love, why does evil exist? Oh, fantastic. So uh, the easy answer is because of free will. And I say easy in one in one respect, meaning that's the quickest answer. A lot of people don't like that, um, especially going back to one of the questions we had earlier. A lot of atheists will be like, well, if I was God, I wouldn't do that then. I would just make the world perfect without all this suffering and everything. But once again, all of these questions, you have to reason through them and go, okay, you know, first off, if we're asking the question of God is he a loving God? Why would he create? Why is there evil in the world and stuff like that? Did God create evil? No, God didn't create evil. But with the ability to have free will comes the possibility of evil. And so I, I once was talking with a guy and I said, let me ask you this. Do you, did you want your parents to go buy a toaster or did you want them to create you? And if God wanted to create Uh, If he wanted to create a bunch of mindless robots, uh, he could have done that, right? We're we're talking about an infinitely powerful being. He can do that if he wants to. But he chose to create beings that had free will. And the reason why I asked that uh, young person that is because I I usually follow up with, uh, I bet you that um, you wanted your parents to create you. I bet that you want some reason in life and your parents, instead of going out and buying a toy or a toaster or a TV or something like that, they wanted a creature that could talk back to them. Now, do we enjoy that our kids talk back to us? No. We would, would we prefer that they didn't? No. But we like that our children have the ability to make decisions. And without free will, you cannot make decisions. You are just a pre-programmed thing following it. And so I can program Alexa, probably, to say, Alexa, tell me you love me. And that's not going to go very far for me. <laughs> but if I have a child who I haven't said anything to, I haven't asked or anything, and they run up to me in the morning and, I love you, Dad and give me a great big hug, that came because of free will, because of their own free choice. That matters, and that means something that Alexa, a robot telling me, I love you, <laughs> does not matter. Right. 
But we always have to remember that if we have that ability to choose to love, we also that then means that we have the ability to choose not to love. And that's where evil comes from. Evil is simply a turning away from God. Because if God is love, you know, this, is, this has been another real eye-opener for me, is understanding that God doesn't have attributes. God is those things. So, you, you know, your question was perfectly stated, if God is love. Yet, not that God is a creature who can love, but God is love itself. And love itself is sacrificing. And so, look what God did for us. God sacrificed in knowing if I create a being who has choices, some of them are going to choose against me. Mm-hmm. But if I am truly love, then what else can I do? And that's what parents do all the time. That's why we have kids, because we want little beings that have the ability to love, and we don't want mindless robots. So You know, when you t- mention robots, I kind of smile because I, I tell people that all the time. God doesn't, you know, he doesn't make us robots and command us to worship him. He allows us to make that choice. And, uh, and I think that's the, the, you know, which is a beautiful thing to have that choice. And so uh, getting people sometimes to understand that, I think, is, is kind of an interesting thing because they automatically yeah. think, well, God is horrible because he allows evil to happen. And that's that's not the case at all. So let's talk. We're going to jump into sexuality here, too. And this, of course, uh, really right now, very hot topic because oh, yeah. of just so many of the things going on in our culture today. And. Um, I guess we'll start with uh, creating one sex to dominate over the the other. Did God create it to be that way? Oh, man, haven't you read St. Paul? (laughs) (laughs) So that's usually where people's thoughts go. So here's the big thing, that God created us with different roles. (gasps) Uh Uh-oh. Different roles? you got to be kidding me. So so many people hear that and cringe and go, nuh-uh. Because, like you said, we live in a world where now everything has to be absolutely equal for every single person. We're not talking about different dignity. God made us all with equal dignity, but he made us with different roles. And so one might ask, well, why would God do that? Well, the best that I've heard it explained through, uh, actually, Dr. Brant Petrie does a great thing on why I said, have you read St. Paul? Because it's called Wives Do What? And he explains one of St. Paul's uh, most very misunderstood passages in Ephesians 5, right. yeah. which you probably know. And it gets a little bit sticky, and usually guys get kind of uncomfortable and like, oh, man, not this reading. And, and wives And, and kinda, unfortunately, some priests avoid it. Yeah, avoid exactly. It, which is, shouldn't be done. But and, and, and wives sometimes are giving you the daggers with their eyes because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, here it comes, here it comes. Mm-hmm. And it's where St. Paul says that wives should be subordinate to their husbands in everything. And you're going, what? But here's the thing that we have to at first, and this is beautiful because I get to go over this with uh, couples that are getting ready to get married. And what we have to understand first is, wait a minute, is it in Scripture? Yeah, it's in Scripture. Can Scripture teach something that is morally wrong? No. If Scripture can't teach something that is morally wrong because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, then obviously we are not understanding what St. Paul is saying about that. And so, as I was saying, we have different roles to fulfill. And Dr. Brant Petrie says the reason why God does that is for peace in the family. 
so that if we understand our roles and we can look at one another and go, okay, I can learn off of you and what your role is for our family, then instead of having a constant power struggle of, nope, I'm the head, nope, I'm the head, nope, I'm the head, or just um, people not willing to um, even accept their role in the family and just leave it to the other person. You know, I think yesterday I heard you talking about uh, you were talking about that Swiss study. Yeah. I, actually, I think it was one of the questions. It was. Yeah. So, yeah, that Swiss study, I've read through it before. And, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want about it. But uh, this study that shows that uh, if the male is not if the father's not leading in matters of spirituality, the children leave at an alarmingly higher rate. That's. That should tell us something that God wants us to fulfill those roles so that there can be peace in our families. So that's where we have to start out with is God gave us equal dignity but different roles. And we should understand that our roles do not make us less of a person. Right. You know, but that's the problem that we have. Right. And, you know, I think they forget about the part that also says, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Correct. And so it's not a, you know, it's not this power. This is not this power struggle you talk about that uh, so so many times I think people tend to to read that and think of or hear that and think of it that way. Yeah. And so he uh, he actually goes on. To, to say, nobody, um, treat your wife as you would treat your own body. Nobody hates his own body, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And yeah, what people don't understand is that uh, the husband's role to, in being the leader of the family, his, his main goal, what people have to understand, when we talk about marriage, we're talking about a covenant. We're talking about a lifelong commitment, not just for this world, but for the next. next. And so the husband's main role is to get his spouse and his children to heaven. And if that is his main role, then what Dr. Brant Petrie says is a wife's role is to submit to the husband's role of getting them to heaven, which means she's submitting to her own salvation. Now, tell me out there, who of you does not want to submit to your own salvation? Right? That just the thing is that it falls on it falls on the head of the family to make sure that you're fasting the most, you're praying the most, and you're leading uh, in ways that are going to create the best environment for your family to be able to answer their vocation in life. I asked a couple last night that I was talking about this same thing on. I said, "You show me a couple that um, sacrifices for one another for the better good of the family, so that everybody in that family can get to heaven." And you show me how many times that couple is going to get divorced. Like, yeah, <laughs> I would say that number is pretty close to zero. Yeah. yeah. And when we look out into the rest of the world and we go, what's the number there? 40 to 50 percent mm-hmm. at the divorce rate. Yeah. So so, you know, it is a challenge then. It, it's a challenge out there. Do you want to live the way that God has said and realize that there's not a power struggle here? God wants you to have peace in your family. He created the uh, the husband to be the head of the family. He created the wife to be the heart of the family. And if we fulfill those roles, and if we as spouses allow our spouse to fulfill their role, I guarantee you are going to find peace. But you have to take up that challenge. That's that's the hard thing. Right. Well, one of the things, interestingly, I had a guy talking to a group of women. He worked in the workplace. And the question he asked them was, is your husband the spiritual leader of the family? And if not, kind of wanted to get their response to that. And he said each and every one of them said, you know, that that said no. There were a few that said yes, but each one of them said no, but I wish they were. Yep. 
women desire men to be spiritual leaders in the family. Uh, it, it, it's a, if you look at families where that's, that, that dynamic is happening, those families are, and again, it's not perfect by any means. I always tell no, people, we have free will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you can have a, you can have parents that are doing everything right, and you're still, you know, somebody's going to kind of go off the rails. It can happen. It's just that's that's just the case. But, but nine times out of ten, you're going to have families that are are worshiping together, families that are, you know, really embracing the faith, and and it's a beautiful thing when that when that all comes together. So yeah, and um, just really quick, if I could finish up sure. on that, Dr. Brant Petrie says that uh, he he talked with a friend of his who if i remember right was a uh, uh, a psychologist or something in that field and helps couples who are having problems and he says almost every time when a couple is having problems it's he says it's almost verbatim the woman says my husband never chooses me and the man says my wife doesn't respect me and that's what God has done in creating those roles is wives respect your husbands and uphold them so that they can fulfill that role. Men choose your wives at all time because in part of that reading of St. Paul, it talks about, yeah, like you were saying, that uh, you have to treat your wife as Christ treated the church. And what did Christ do? Christ gave himself up for her absolutely and completely. And so if we look at that and we go, if I, I guarantee, like you were saying, if you go around and you ask women, you know, what do you want from your husband? I guarantee every single one of them, if you ask them, do you want your husband to choose you? Well, yeah. Do you want him to choose you all the time? Yeah. Do you want to, to know that your husband always has you in his thoughts and not, not some other woman? Yeah. Every woman wants that. And if you ask, uh, you know, if you ask a man, do you want your wife to respect you? Yeah. Well, if you want her to respect you, then you got to fulfill your role. Right. Yeah. So. Excellent point. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, smartphone app, Echo, or at dbmercy.com, please know we'll be right back with more about Apologetics for Teens with Cody Marincer. One body. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. Cody Marincer. Apologetics for Teens. Ken Billinger conducts the interview. We're talking with Cody Marinzer of Apologetics for Teens. Well, let's talk about what is love. And and I know in today's world, again, that can be kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of, <laughs> it's like a gray area in some cases, but let's talk about that. What is love? Uh, this is, I have to give credit to my dad. Um, I don't know if he's listening or not, but uh, there, uh, I don't even know that I've told him this, so I need to tell him this. So, Dad, if you're listening, I'm telling you. If not, we need to have a discussion. But uh, I remember he actually sat me down uh, when I was about 18 years of age, and I think he was just kind of concerned where I was going in life. Uh, we sat down and had a dinner together just him and I, and just had kind of a man-to-man. And I remember at that time myself being very confused about a lot of the feelings and things that I was having uh, and just just knowing, you know, when when do I know that it's the right person? 
Um, how do I know, you know, I feel like I have all this love to give out to people, but you know, how do I know when it's love? And he looked at me and he goes, Code, you need to realize that love's not an emotion. And I looked at him and I think I gave him the rest of the conversation like, yeah, yeah. But in the back of my mind, I was like, you're crazy, man. <laughs> like, what do you mean love's not an emotion? I'm sitting here pouring my heart out like I have all these feelings that are guiding me. And, and, and I, have to, I have to admit that, um, you know, as life went on further and especially today, I now realize how right he was that to be in love with somebody might be an emotion, right? To be infatuated with them, to be mm. supremely drawn to them, you know, in this emotion. But to love is an action. So what is love? Love is choosing that person, choosing to sacrifice for others. And once we get our heads wrapped around that, then I go, well, no wonder, like you said, our society, which is so confused about what love is and is telling us, um, you know, even even when you talk about other situations and people go, well, why can't you just let two people love each other? Well, that question usually is centering on feelings. I have a great feeling. I have a great admiration, a great desire to be with this person. Feelings are only going to take you so far. And a lot of times they're going to take you off track, because if we look at the divorce rate, and we go, all right, I got, I got married because I had a strong attraction to this person. It's a good thing to have a strong attraction to your spouse. But if that's the only reason that you got married, there's going to be some day you wake up. I bet you I wake up some mornings and I just have dragon breath. You know, if I had hair, I can imagine that my hair would be all messy. And if my wife rolled over and looks at me and goes, oh, my goodness, did something die in your mouth? And look and be like, you're not the prettiest thing this morning. <laughs> you know, if all we are living on is emotions and especially think, think about this. If you had a fight the night before and you have not made amends about that, you go to bed angry with one another. You wake up in the morning, your spouse has horrible breath, messy hair. You look at them and you go, you don't look quite pretty this morning. A lot of people just end up saying, you know what? Maybe I married the wrong person mm -hmm. because they followed their emotions in that situation. But true love, which I've talked to, in fact, um, I think I've talked it enough to where my, especially my seniors, they know, they know about it. I bet if there's any of them listening now, which God bless you if you are, that would be awesome. But I bet they can about verbatim say what I'm about to say here. And it's about the um, Greek uh, words for love. And the one that is used uh, most in uh, the New Testament is um, uh, is uh, agape. Right. Uh, and that is the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, we can follow our emotions to a point, but they're going to lead us over the edge of a cliff if that's all we're doing. If we want to know what true love is, I always tell my students, look at the cross. And although you might think it's a, it's a simple answer or a serious answer, no, truly look at the cross and look what our Savior did. He didn't come down to earth and give us a bro hug and go, hey, good luck, my man. I'm going up to the Father. We'll see you in a while. <laughs> I mean, this guy suffered like I in my life have never suffered. Uh, broken feet, toes, arms, anything like that. I sometimes, oh, why me? But look at what Jesus did, yeah. right? He did not look at us and go, whew, you know what? I'm just tired of looking at you guys 
Every time that I offer you myself, you spit in my face, you slap me, you put a crown of thorns on my head, you whipped me. So now I'm done with you. I'm coming off the cross and I'm smiting all of you. He didn't do that. He gave it to the full. Jesus never divorced us. And so when I look at that, I go, we need to have a new understanding that love is sacrifice. It's not an emotion. No, that's a beautiful thing. We're talking with Cody Marenzer of Apologetics for Teens is our topic. And we're talking about, and really what we're talking about today, I think, is, is, is a message not just for teens, but everybody. Because I think uh, there's some very um, important information that you're sharing today. So let's talk about how sexuality is tied into love. Um, I know we, we've got about 15 minutes left yeah. or so, so a lot, a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> right. uh, so, yeah, I'll, I'll try to not to get, go off the rails no, too long. No, that's okay. This is good stuff, but the, and it's just, uh, it's like we need, I think we need two hours. So. Yeah, I think we do. I agree. You and I could sit here and talk for a while. <laughs> but uh, that's, a, that's another, I think, very confused point in our culture today. And in fact, I, I've got to give credit uh, to uh, uh, to other people because I was listening to other people talk recently and in a conversation there was uh, there was somebody who said that uh, we in our society have basically taught people taught our children and, and I say we not as in all of us but society as a whole uh, society has taught uh, everybody the, this emotional response like I was already talking about. And so I think what happens a lot of times, which I would agree with the person that was saying this, is that we have a new emotional response, especially as kids who have not had an emotional response like to somebody like that before. And we think now we have trained them to understand that the next step in that has to be sexual interaction. And that's what that initial emotional response to that person means. We have forgotten that you can have very deep relationships with other people, and it does not have to end in the sexual realm. But our society has taught people that, no, that's the obvious next step of that. Mm -hmm. And so I go back to what I was already talking about. How is sexual, sexuality tied into love? Sexuality has to always be self-giving, not self-taking. And we have to empty ourselves out completely for the other person. If at any moment we find, am I doing this for selfish motives? Then we know that we're probably stepping into sinful bounds and we're probably stepping into something that we shouldn't be in because sexuality has to be giving, not taking. Mm. We're going to talk about, and, and, and also you talk about chaste love as well. Um, Kind of share, share your thoughts on that a little bit. So uh, here's where there's actually three words that people kind of lump together. Chastity, celibacy, and um, consonants. And so you have to actually distinguish between them because they don't all mean the same thing. Celibacy would be we're all, uh, we're actually continent, we're all called to continence at some point in our lives. Uh, continence would be to abstain from any sexual contact. As we, uh, as single people, are not married yet, we're called to that. Some people who um, have chosen the celibate life for a lifelong commitment, they're called to be continent then for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. Some of us, though, will only be called to be uh, continent at different points. 
So actually, when I'm talking to youth about this and I go, do you guys realize that in my marriage, I'm called to be chaste? Immediately they go, what? And they look at me like, no. Um, when you get married, Mr. Marinzi, you're supposed to have relations with your wife. <laughs> and I go, okay, well, there you go. That's a misunderstanding of what chastity is. The best way that I have heard it is chastity explained is chastity is you are in control of your sexual appetite instead of your sexual appetite being in control of you. That puts a different look on things because then even within marriage, we go, I should not be ogling my spouse as a piece of meat. Even though I have through, uh, through making this commitment to my spouse, I now morally have um, the, the right to enter into that type of uh, intimate interaction with my spouse. That doesn't mean that I can take it whenever I want. And I think that actually takes me back to um, original sin. Not that that's what original sin was, but that's what original sin did to us as human beings was it opened our eyes as to how we can use one another for pleasure. And so that's why right before original sin, you see that it says they were naked and unashamed. But right after original sin, it says they were naked and they saw themselves as such and they were ashamed. And I think that is why is because once we our eyes are open to I can use this person to derive whatever pleasure I want, especially when we talk about the sexual realm, Mm -hmm. you know, that goes back to the question that I just answered. Are you being um, self-giving or are you being self-taking? And that's why even within marriage, you're called to be in control of your sexual appetite. Don't let it control you. And I know that can be a difficult thing. I'm not sitting here being like, yep, the master of it. Um, <laughs> just just come talk to me and I'll get you set straight. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that every single person probably struggles sure. from. Yeah. But just because we struggle doesn't mean that we can give up the struggle. Right, right. All right, this right, we're going to move in. And this is an area that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of things going on lately with this. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I think it's something very important to talk about. If, if two people love each other, not no matter what their sex is, why should it matter to the church? All right. <clears throat> yeah, let's hit that one. So first off, the church, you know, some people would like the church to just sit back and basically um, keep to itself and not really say anything. Uh, about stuff, but because the church is the moral guide here on earth, then the church not only has the right, but the duty to speak on things like this. And then wrap everything into what I've already said into this question. If two people love each other, well, first off, don't look at love as just an emotional response. Um, When you look at it as self-sacrificing, there are many ways that you can love a person without having to engage in sexual intimacy with them. And so that's where I think maybe even the question falls short um, in the first place is we're not looking at love in the right way. Second, though, I think if we look at why should it matter? Well, I mean, obviously, I can give you all kinds of theological answers to that answers in Scripture where it's very clear um, that God uh, made us man and woman and things like that. But simply uh, reason through it, too. That um, ju- we can we can uh, look at natural law to look at our bodies and go, were our bodies made to complement one another as man and woman? Yes, they were. Okay, logically, if uh, if two people of the same sex, if everything goes exactly right, can they ever procreate? No. no. 
Um, so the, even natural law tells us, wait a minute, why do we have actually reproductive systems? What are they for? Okay. The problem is we like to, there are many realms where we will say, wait a minute, that's not what that's actually used for. But for some reason, this is the odd thing. When it comes to the, the sexual reproduction organs, uh, we have now gone to say that pleasure is the number one reason for them. Now, pleasure is a good thing. God gave it to us, but we can abuse that. And the, the two aspects of marriage are the unification of the spouses and procreation of children. That doesn't mean that every time that uh, you and your wife or you and your husband are together, that means that there has to be a child that comes from that intimate union. But that means that you have to be open to the gift of life. And two people of the same sex, if everything is working perfect, that can never be. You know, and so there's obviously lots of offshoots that we can talk about that, but I think that once again would take uh, that would take another hour. And specifically, though, you know, that's what it is: is God called us as man and woman uh, to unite to one another as a lifelong partnership and to give ourselves completely to each other. If you cannot give yourself completely to one another, then that should tell you that something is wrong here. And because our bodies were made to complement each other, the only way that we can actually give ourselves 100% to the other person is if we give our reproductive ability to that person also. Mm. And that's not possible in a same-sex marriage. And, one, and that's really what's happened because of that, too, is it's really made things very convoluted in just so many situations because that leads to more confusion and it leads to more you know, situations that become very challenging for people. And I'll use the example of the church, and in, in, uh, you probably had heard the story of one of the parishes in, I think it was Roland Park or somewhere in Kansas City, just recently, the story about the gay couple that brought their child in, their adopted child in, to go to Catholic school. The whole argument soon began because, you know, there were people that saying the church needs to allow this because they're being hypocrites if they don't. When you look at that, if we stick to the teachings of the church, the church would be hypocritical if they did allow it. And, and they're saying, well, they're, they're penalizing the child. Well, people don't understand here is, look, if this child is sitting in the classroom and they're hearing church teaching saying to same-sex people morally co- incorrect, how is that child going to be be able to react to that you're exposing the child to to the which is the truth of course but that child is going to go through more suffering because he's going to look around saying oh wait my i don't know if it's two two women or two men it doesn't matter i think it's two women but the point is is there's going to be confusion for that child you know and i think so a lot of the points that you've made i think yeah i know we're running out of time here but i might just finish with uh and this goes not just for that couple, but for any couple too that is uh, not uh, that's not following the teaching of the church. Why do you want to send your kids to a Catholic school then? I, I kind of think I ought to. I think we ought to start throwing it back into people's court. And uh, I, you know, obviously, I believe that it's the truth, and I think that you're going to get a great education. And I think sometimes people don't send them there for the Catholic faith; they send them there for the private school part of it. Which, which is sad, but yeah, I think that goes for, yeah, not just this couple, but a lot of people um, who, okay, 
you know that we are going to teach your child something that is contrary to the lifestyle you're living. Exactly. Why do you want to put your child in that situation? Exactly. And and so, yeah, people, uh, people who are living in a um, so-called same sex marriage, you know, you have to know that the Catholic Church teaches against this. Any final thoughts you want to share? I, th- this is some great stuff, and, and uh, we could certainly talk more uh, more on this topic. But uh, any final thoughts? You yeah, I just, I, you know, I think I would pass on. And once again, I'm not perfect, but uh, I'm learning a lot. My wife is so very good about sacrificing, and uh, I'm learning a lot for her. And uh, as I said earlier, you know, I'm called to be the one that sacrifices the most. And uh, I just, uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, <laughs> Mr. Bill Mayer, which you had him on yesterday, he talked me into doing the Exodus 90 thing. And I'm hating him a little bit this morning, but, yeah. but also loving the guy because he got me talked into it. Um, last night's shower was uh, cold. I actually, yeah, I came out of it and I actually kind of started laughing. I was like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You know, but it is one of those things that I need in my life. I need other men who challenge me. And so I'm so thankful to him for doing this because it is challenging me to sacrifice. I have to have that. I need people pushing me. I need more sacrifice in my life. And I would say that um, I'm sure there are a lot of other people out there that do, too, because if we want to have true, long, lasting, loving relationship, it's all about sacrifice. Exodus 90 is what I call Lent on steroids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cody, thanks so much for, for joining us thanks today. For having always, me. Great, always great having you in. Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, smartphone app, Echo, or at dvmercy.com, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's One Body Stewarding God's Creation. If you have a comment on today's show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the One Body icon. The comment button is in the middle of the page. And folks, eternity is not seen, but neither are these airwaves. But if you can support these radio waves and help save souls for eternity, then please go to dvmercy.com and click on Donate, where your donation will be seen and appreciated. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KBDM 88.1 Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.